This is a conversation with Eric Wolterstorff. Hi, Eric. <clears throat> Hi, Serge. So, you're interested in social trauma. What does that mean? Social trauma um, is concerned with how do societies um, respond, what are the dynamics at work in societies that have been subjected to traumatic events or uh, extreme uh, sustained stresses, so war, natural disasters, and so on. Hmm. And um, you... Uh you apply a framework that's not just uh, society, but you're interested also in uh, uh, theories like family systems, so there's something that's more of a preoccupation that therapists can relate to. Yeah, so, so let me give a little context for the work right here. So psychoanalysts um, a number of times in the last century have talked about uh, uh, social trauma, or more specifically cultural trauma. So, so Freud in, uh, in Totem and Taboo, before the First World War broke out, talked about this, and then before the Second World War in 1939, he wrote Moses and Monotheism, which, which explored this idea more of a, of what happens when you traumatize a culture and how is that, that, uh, trauma transmitted across generations. Um, I, I entered, my interest, uh, it came when I read a book that had been written by a, a, a psychoanalyst, uh, Emmanuel Velikovsky, who many people know from the uh, Worlds in Collision and him talking about early religions. Uh, much of early religious rely, writing were, were accounts of uh, global catastrophes. And he had some very interesting ideas. And when I read his book, Mankind and Amnesia, I thought, I'll bet these things could be modeled. And I got very, very excited about that. That was in 1995, and all of my work since then has been um, efforts to model and create tools to understand and work with uh, societies subjected uh, to, to stresses and traumas. Now, that's meant two things. Theoretically, I went and got my Ph.D., um, which was interdisciplinary, so... Um, my dissertation was a speculative model of how groups respond to threats, and I was looking at the neuropsychology literature, the traumatology literature, the family therapy literature, and a lot of work with uh, systems theory and, and work with social insects and, and how to model large-scale behavior. So that was the theoretical path. Mm-hmm. Now, there are a lot of people um, with with bad theories and a lot of people with good theories that, that don't have a much practical application in the world. So I took these, what, what, what were to become these models, and I said, how would this affect working with individuals who have been traumatized? So I applied the models to uh, individual therapy and got really good results and trained some other people. And then I moved on um, and began to work with families applying these models. And again, had, had a, this is a lot of work over you know about five years each for each of these things, and and had a good deal of success there. And then I uh, founded a crisis consulting firm and began to work with uh, businesses and other organizations going through traumatic uh, events. For example, working in uh, New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina. And, um, you know, created tools that worked at that level. And for the last three years, I've begun to turn myself, uh, turn, turn my attention to, uh, to national, uh, sort of problems, like problems of, uh, uh, healing in, 
Rwanda um, and uh, various things like that. Yeah, so um, you started from uh, an interest in uh, big crisis, social trauma, went into an understanding of it um, that you found ways to actually apply to individuals, to family systems, to groups, and then to larger groups. So in a way, the model was scalable and verified by the results that you were obtaining when you applied it in these different circumstances. Exactly. So from this place, maybe, uh, how do we use an operational definition of trauma that we can, um, you know, use to connect people from the trauma they're familiar with, you know, in a small group, to the larger kind of social trauma that you're dealing with? Okay. Well, where we're, where we're going to be in a few minutes, the, the, the place that we're getting to is this ability to look at a society around a particular issue and to see how subgroups form in a society and how to work with each of those subgroups. Um, that, that, that's where we're going to be in five or 10 or 15 minutes. Okay. So let, let's walk ourselves, um, through, through a series of, uh, three steps to get there. Um, so I'm presuming that the most people listening to this are, are, are quite familiar with in, with individual, uh, responses to, to stresses or traumas and, yeah. and healing processes and so on. Okay. So when we, work as a therapist with a client and and there's uh, some degree of trust or safety in the relationship and we do um, some form of exposure therapy with an adequate amount of skill, then we can help that uh, traumatic experience to integrate and there should be a lessening of symptoms and so on. Mm-hmm. Now, there is a, there's a different class of, uh, there are different classes of traumas, but there's a whole, one way to sort of divide up the field is, is a number of them, uh, of traumatic events happen in, in what I call in-groups. So this would be traumas that happen in a family setting or in a, in a school setting or a summer camp setting where we can't get away. So we're looking more at the territory of, uh, Judith Herman's captivity trauma or Leonard Terre's you know, type two trauma. Um, we store the memories of these events differently, which is to say we store the memories of the different roles that people played who were present. So concretely, there's a, here, here, there's, there's a family. Let's say in the family there's a father who's beating the son. Um, the mother doesn't intervene, goes into another room, and the, the, the little sister is, is hiding and afraid. Mm-hmm. This has happened a million times. So if we're working with a young man um, who, let's say this happened uh, in some very severe way or, or a repeated way, um, he is going to be storing, the, this boy who's grown up to be a man, is going to be storing not simply his experience as a victim, but he's going to be storing what he imagined were the experiences, what was going on inside uh, his father, the perpetrator, inside mm-hmm. his mother, who left. Why did she leave? It's his little sister who was watching it to do nothing. These are, these are all stored. And 
the, the, the way that they show up as symptoms is that when we create these traumatic reenactments in our life, we recruit people around us who will represent those various roles. This is a, this is a variant of the projective identification mechanism. Yeah. So one, so, so let, let's, let's stay here for a moment before we go on because there's a, a very big problem that happens in the field. Which is, uh, m- many of us are, are, are familiar with the problem as therapists that we can get therapists who identify as, as wonderful healing caretakers and clients who come in as victims and they can get caught in a, in a, in a loop where the, uh, there's an unconscious collusion that, uh, that the therapist is, is competent and the, and the client is incompetent and they can get stuck in, in, in this thing. And, and, and the field has talked about this for the last 50 years. Mm-hmm. But there's, there's a second level of collusion that shows up even when we solve that problem. So when we solve that problem, we help to empower our clients and, and, and we help them to grow in the relationship. And so the, the, the client can integrate not only the, the victim aspect of what happened to them, but also they can be empowered and, uh, and integrate a potential savior mm-hmm. aspect. So, so this is really good. But one of the things that that is quite quite typical um, in my experience um, it, it, when therapists are working with clients around traumas is that the bystander and the perpetrator is considered bad, and we lock them out of the office. Um, early on, I've had clients, you know, where I, they can only work if the door is locked or they can only work if the door is open because we've got to keep the, the perpetrator and the bystander away in order to have safety to do the work. Well, that's fine if our first two steps in working are to integrate the victim, the, the savior role, and then the victim role. But if we stop there, then the client has still not integrated the bystander or the perpetrator yeah. roles and they will continue through this form of projective identification to move into relationships like that. Yeah. Which can really make, um, which can be a shame. All, all of this work and yet the most dangerous of the symptoms continue. The ones that lead most likely to re-traumatization. So, so, so just let me just summarize what I'm hearing is that sense that, um, when we talk about um, a trauma situation in a in a group setting, uh, there's several actors, several roles, and um, all of these roles are included in some form in the memory of the victim, and that uh, true healing is about having a resolution uh, that integrates all the roles as opposed to simply dealing with the victim. Exactly. And I, I'd like to add two things. Um, one is that perhaps it wasn't the, uh, the the boy who grew up to be a man who came in for therapy. Perhaps it was the sister or the mother who comes in with bystander trauma. Or perhaps the father comes in because he's tired of tearing his family apart and he can't control his rage attacks. So the, the client could come in with any of the roles. But typically it's the victim role. Um, it, one, one other thing that can happen here that, that can be really unfortunate um, side effect and insidious is that if we're working with somebody who's had a lot of trauma and we're working them with them for a, 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 over a period of time and that person is in a relationship probably before they came in to see us as therapists they were projecting onto their partner 
savior and bystander and perpetrator. Mm-hmm. Now they're coming in to get therapy, and we've got, uh, 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 and we don't know any better as therapists, and we only work with the savior and the victim roles. And by doing that and by empowering our clients and also as therapists holding the savior role, as time goes on, we actually pull away, we reduce the savior transference that the client is having on their partner, which leaves their partner only with bystander and perpetrator transference. Mm-hmm. And so it's a it's a very old story that people can come into therapy, they're getting work to heal, and then they discover all of these problems in their marriage or with their partner, which, and of course, many, many times they're quite true. But what can be happening is, is that, that actually we're pulling away through, through, by, by sort of stealing the positive transference with the partner and leaving only the negative transference. Nothing is objectively changing in the, in the marriage, but the marriage is now being torn apart because our client is now only having negative transference with their partner. Yeah. And they could lose the greatest support in their life. So yeah. th- this is an, an implication. So that's a it's a very nice way to summarize the uh, unintended consequences, yes. perverse consequences of the therapist as a savior, is to actually uh, steal that part of the projection that the uh, client would have, say, on their spouse or other resource in their environment, and then weakens their environment. Exactly. Now, this takes us to the second step. So this basic dynamic, though not talked about in terms of PTSD, was talked about for for for, for decades by the family therapy um, specialist and in that literature. And if we take these these four post traumatic roles of savior, victim, bystander, and perpetrator, they correlate very very nicely and for very good reason. With, for example, I'm going to use slightly different names for them, but the, but the Bowenian family roles of uh, the caretaker, what he calls uh, the, the you know the the overfunctioning. So the savior becomes the caretaker, the victim becomes the identified patient, the bystander becomes the distancer, the person in the family who leaves the room whenever there's tension. You know, quite often the father. And the perpetrator becomes the outsider, who could be the the the, the black sheep in the family. Um, and, and so these, these, these patterns, after enough repeated traumas, um, in enough traumatic environments, regardless of whether we were the victim or the perpetrator or the savior or the bystander, can be, um, they, they, they can be perpetuated in family systems as habits. Yeah, people learn their roles. Right? Okay. So that, that's step two. Now we can take the, the, the next step, which is, Societies do the same thing, and Bowen talked about this. Um, and in many ways, my work is about trying to go out and rigorously model um, what this what this next step is of how this shows up in societies and what we can do about it. So that that's that's the setup for for where my where my work is. So so in a way, we're going to now you're going to take us through um, these four roles, uh, showing how they happen at the societal level. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. So let's um, let's just start with the the, the, the sort of easiest. Um, um, you know, we can talk about overcoupling and undercoupling. So a threat happens um, in a society. Um, 
Oh, let's say, okay, let's say when, um, when Hurricane Katrina, um, hit New Orleans, then that, that impacted the country. Or when the, we're right here at the, at the inner anniversary this weekend of the, of the 9-11 attacks. So when, when, when the, when the Tin Towers and the, and the Pentagon and then the other plane that went down, when that occurred, in, in both those cases, we are going to be responding as individuals all across the country. So the initial response is an individual response. Mm-hmm. So our response could be, um, it could be the five responses are, there are four, we were talking about four roles before. We've got, we've got five responses that we've got rational, which means that people respond to the threat appropriately. Now, I'm, I'm, that's, that's a, as opposed to what I'm about to list or, or the, or the, or the other possibilities. Mm-hmm. The savior response is to run and try and help. Now, that's usually a good response, but it's not necessarily a good response. Um, because if, if, if we have a critically important job and we stop doing it to run and try and solve another problem, we can create more problems. So like if an ambulance drives crazily through traffic to save someone and they cause four wrecks on the way, they've caused more damage than they're going to than have saved by saving the one person. You see yeah. What I'm yeah, yeah. So very clear, very beautiful example of how uh, something that's normally useful to be a savior uh, can actually, uh, if any jerk reaction, not be in reality and therefore be dysfunctional. Right. And saviors will tend to become fixated on one or a handful of problems, of threats. And what's good is they're working on them, they're helping society by working on them, but they will tend to lose the ability to assess how important their threats are related to other threats. So there's a very big example of this happening right now with the the, the Tea Party talking about um, debt and the long-term financial stability of the United States. They're talking about other things, but let's pick that one theme. That's true. Mm-hmm. That is a threat. But how do we balance that against the need for federal deficit spending to kickstart the economy? Right. How do we trade, right? I, I could, you know, we could list eight or ten other things that might be as or more important. And when we become fixated on a particular position, the question isn't, is, does this need, does this problem need to be solved? Because the answer is yes. You can say, well, we have to, to weigh out, we have to prioritize our, we have, when we spend our resources, we have to do that in a balanced, prioritized way. And when we get stuck in the savior subgroup, we can become sort of a, of a kind of have blinders on, and we overprioritize our own cause, and we underprioritize others. Yeah. Okay. So that's the mildest of this sort of subgroup trance. Mm-hmm. I like, by the way, when you call it a trance. <laughs> that that feels um, very much like um, uh, a way to capture the the. the fact that it's not focused on reality, but it's something intervening 
to filter reality. Right. And um, so when, when behavioral economists talk about risk aversion, for example, then they're talking about how people have a propensity to, um, to attach too much importance to a risk or too little importance. I don't think if I, if I phrase that accurately. But, but, but if they did the math, then they would make a different choice than their instinct or their first assessment tells them to do. They'll be inappropriately cautious or, you know, inappropriately risky. Um, that, that's, that's what happens in this savior trance is they, they apply too much weight to the particular thing that, 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 that they're focused on. Mm-hmm. So when we have a more stress in, in a system, then a second group forms, um, a second subgroup forms, which is the victim subgroup. And the victim subgroup feels that they're unable to solve the problem, but they feel the problem is very important. So they cast themselves at problems that are much larger than they can solve. This is the the uh, the typical profile of a nonprofit organization or an NGO. They they take on problems that are are immense. We're going to solve, you know, we're we're going to stop malaria in Africa. Well, for the Gates Foundation, that's probably an appropriate goal in terms of size. But for anyone else, we can become overwhelmed by attempting to. To, to boil the ocean, as the phrase goes. Right. The, the victim subgroup tends to um, to feel overwhelmed. There are too many things. If, if we listen to um, sort of uh, Pacifica Radio, for example, which is a which is an activist uh, left wing radio station um, or radio network, so they're going to be talking about corruption and problems all day long. And one can get more and more anxious and and actually lose capacity to do something by living too long purely in that world because it can be overwhelming. Yeah, yeah. So you're not talking about victim in the sense of uh, just in a factual statement, this person was the victim of this or that, but you're talking about the role where there is re-traumatization by focusing on things that are impossible to solve and therefore constantly recreating the sense of powerlessness. Right. And that's right. Whereas, and it's so it's a so I'm, I'm, I'm going to jump to the punchline if somebody says, what, what do we do about this? And one of the things that we do is we attempt to recruit people from one subgroup into the next. And, and we can only move one subgroup at a time, as will be very obvious. But we can move victims to saviors. And the way that we move victims to saviors is we say, instead of trying to solve 50 problems or track 50 problems, which is overwhelming your psyche, Narrow your lens down and accomplish something. Though it's smaller, accomplish something because that, that accomplishment is going to be helping everybody. Yeah. So they can, they can move from victim to savior. Beautiful. When there's even more stress or trauma in a system, we, we get that we start to move into the passive responses. So the next one is the bystander response. And it's just like, I don't know what to do. And so people stop wanting to hear about it. The whole subject's too upsetting. Um, we talk about global warming with a lot of people, and, there, and there's just this shrug. What, what can I do? What can I do? 
I can't do anything. You want me to not drive my car? What difference is that going to make? Do you mean to turn on the heat? What difference is that going to make? And there's just this sense of collapse. It's like, you know, the, this thing has momentum and I can't do anything about it at all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This characterizes most people's responses about most threats, which is different from a rational position. It, it can look similar, but it's completely different. The rational person is paying attention to what all the various threats are. They do their best to prioritize, and then they put their resources into the priority. And the other things, they listen, and they know. They don't turn away from the bad news, but they say, right, but we're prioritizing here. Whereas the bystander has has very little capacity, and they just say, I don't want to hear about it. Yeah. They can never prioritize. But, you know, in all fairness, um, we live in large societies where... Uh, the decision making is something that can feel remote and uh, uh, hard to to grasp. You know, for instance, a political decision process can be pretty alienating. So it, it's understandable that most people could feel in a position of bystander. Uh, you know, in front of uh, things that are pretty big, big crises. So the great challenge. Exactly. To mobilize this passive part of the culture, this socially or politically passive part of our culture, is to find little tiny steps that they can take to become more involved. So I, I, in, in the 1980s, there was this very strange conflation between picking up litter and helping solve environmental problems like the rainforest. And people would say, yeah, I'm really concerned about things like, you know, uh, pollution and the rainforest. So I'm going to join a litter campaign. Mm-hmm. Now, because I was educated about this, and this was a, sort of a big area for me in the 1980s, I found that childish. And it took me years to understand that that was a very, very good intervention because it, got, it took people one step in. Yep. I can clean my street. Yeah. One step at a time. And then as people take one step, then they're going to feel a sense of accomplishment. Then they get a second step. Then they get a third step. And they do more and more. And at a certain point, they start to get hungry and they learn about more. And then they get overwhelmed and you've successfully moved them to the victim state. Now you've got somebody who cares and who's an activist and now they feel overwhelmed. And now we've got to help move them from victim to savior. Yeah. And, and I, I really appreciate, by the way, in the way you're explaining it, uh, a sense of these various, you know, like a funnel uh, where people can go from one group to the next, and it makes more and more sense as you're talking about it. Yeah. But the, the last and the most severe, the, the severe, the severest problem, the most severely traumatized subgroup, um, show up as the perpetrator subgroup. And these are people who feel as if there is no hope. So they break the social contract. So, so after Hurricane Katrina, these are people who loot. Um, there was probably looting after 9-11, though maybe there's a, I imagine that there's this sort of a, that, that's not part of the narrative. The narrative <laughs> is we came together as New Yorkers. Um, but th- th- there had to have been some looting. Um, in New Orleans, there was a lot of looting. Um, 
you'll get, uh, well, like here, here's the, the South and North Sudan, what became South, the Republic of Sudan couldn't work out its problems between South and North. And we had massive perpetration going on. So the solution at that point was simply to let's split the country in two. And so the perpetrators can actually become their own group. And that, that, that that's one way that we sort of deal with perpetrators. We expel them. And then it's no longer a problem. Mm-hmm. We can't do that as often anymore. So, for example, with global warming, we can't expel anybody. If, yep. if, right? So, and, and we have to find a way to work on that problem together. If the Chinese did everything perfect, but the United States keeps continues to burn coal, I mean, we're burning, you know, 25% of the world's problem we're causing, the United States alone could 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 drive the whole global warming trend over the century. The United States could go perfect, it has somehow become a, a zero-carbon society, and the Chinese could drive it over the edge, or mm-hmm. yeah, as it grows. So we, we can't actually push the perpetrators out. We don't have that option. We're in a closed system. So we have to figure out how to integrate these people who are so severely traumatized that they break from the social contract, and they just say, I don't care about the threat. I don't care if the ship goes down. I'm going to get the best little raft I can and steal as many provisions and let the rest of you die. We are losing that option as a species as we spills the planet. So we have to figure out how to actually engage with people in this role and create a dialogue. And if, and, and if we can successfully move them to the bystander role, to where they're not actually perpetrating against other people, they're not willing to care or help, but they'll stop doing damage. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So um, I assume that when you say that, it's not necessarily um, through gentle persuasion, but it can also be a form of uh, societal rule and enforcing rules, the same way as uh, we can force perpetrators not to commit crimes by having police and uh, justice and so on. Yeah, yes, yes, yes. This is the beginning of a very, very long conversation. But, 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 yes. So the big answer is yes, yes, yes. Another thing though is it's, it's important to remember with this is it, it doesn't really serve to be right about what the problem is. So to know what the problem is, what, what the factors are that lead to global warming or lead to, or if, if, if you're sitting on the answer to uh, a kind of an algae that, that can, that can create uh, as much uh, oil as, as petroleum. It doesn't matter if you have that opinion. Enough people in a society have to make, have the opinion that it's recognized as a solution and that people start to embrace it. So there have to, there has to be enough agreement in, in order to make the thing happen, which sometimes means forcing other people's behavior. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, as we are coming to the, uh, to the end of the conversation. Uh, I think it will be very clear to people who listen to, to, to this that uh, this has barely begun to scratch the surface of, uh, of the subject of social trauma. But I feel like you've done a wonderful job of um, setting a background for it. 
So is there something else that you might uh, want to add, you know, as a transition to, uh, you know, people who want to know more about this? Yeah, I um, I, I guess the, the, the big lesson is it's not that hard to learn about to learn a basic set of tools to be able to analyze what's going on and to figure out ways to help. And if you, you do that, then you can, you can really empower yourself to have much more of an impact on making a change in the world. Um, uh, we're about to, uh, uh, about to split one website into two and, and what will be the shiftingculture.com website? I, there's a shiftingculture.com right now. But in the next month or two, that's going to split into in the new website and it will be dedicated to resources on this. Where to go for other readings, things to explain. Um, all of this material is, is going to be there for you with avenues to more. Beautiful. Thanks, Eric. This recording is part of the podcast at relationalimplicit.com. It's hard to learn about, to learn a basic set of tools to be able to analyze what's going on and to figure out ways to help. And if you, you do that, then you can, you can really empower yourself to have much more of an impact on making a change in the world. Um, uh, we're about to, uh, uh, about to split one website into two and, and what will be the shiftingculture.com website? I, there's a shiftingculture.com right now. But in the next month or two, that's going to split into in the new website and it will be dedicated to resources on this. Where to go for other readings, things to explain. Um, all, all of this material is, is going to be there for you with avenues to more. Beautiful. Thanks, Eric. This recording is part of the Somatic Mindfulness and Relational Psychotherapy podcast. See the website, relationalimplicit.com.